This episode of Creative Control is brought to you by Verizon, the network America relies on. I'm your host, KC Finey, and this is Creative Conversation, a Fast Company podcast. Pierre Gilardi is the co-founder and executive creative director of Refinery29, and since she started the company 15 years ago, she's gained invaluable perspective on the creative process and what it really means to be a leader. So in this episode, Gilardi explains how to mourn parts of your creative process when you're building out a brand, why creative control is actually an illusion, and the myth of overcoming imposter syndrome. I know it sounds like a really heavy and depressing episode, but I promise you it's not. You're going to love it. And oh, by the way, if you hear any rumbling or construction in the background, we apologize in advance, but construction waits for no one. Enjoy the episode. So, Pierre, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. You have a great podcast voice. Oh, We're okay. off to a great start here. <laughs> Why, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so... I'd love it if you can take me back to 2005 because I feel like there's a lot of people who say they want to start their own business or their own company, but for many people, there's a number of factors that hold them back, you know, whether it's not knowing where to start, feel of failure, lack of resources or funding. So for you, back in 2005, when you were just 24 years old, starting Refinery29, what would you say was that motivation or push that actually led you to execute on your idea? Mm-hmm. I think one thing that I had to my advantage was uh, a beginner's mind and also the fact that when we started the company, I had no idea what it would become. Mm. You know, we had a we had a vision at the time, but it was for the 1.0 of what refinery is. And now we're in version like 300.0. Um, and so I think that to me it's so important it's a cliche but to start by starting you know you don't know always where it's going to take you and you don't know um, how far it might go and for us we you know we launched in 2005 with this map of 29 different independent boutiques that had a really unique view on what style was and what style looked like Mm -hmm. and that was the original idea and two days after launching we realized that you know, we launched, we got some press, we had 5,000 visitors on our first day, and then traffic tanked because we realized who was going to come back and look at this map every day. Mm, right. And so even within two days, we had to completely reimagine what it was that we were creating and how we were going to hold people's attention, how we were going to continue to evolve what it was that we were doing. So um, I think that beginner's mind of having the openness and the flexibility to roll with what was happening, the beginner, also having beginner's mind of not knowing how things were supposed to be done. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people get really trapped in a belief that things are the way they are for a reason. And when you don't have that thought or you don't know that or, you know, you're not entrenched in that thought pattern, then you're able to come up with new ways. And in 2005, being a digital media company was not something, you know, there weren't a lot of companies for us to compare ourselves to. And so that gave us the power of kind of creating our own map and figuring it out as we went along. Mm-hmm. And it was also really exciting at the time. I came from magazine world and I was so excited about the prospect of being in immediate conversation with an audience. And right. I used to moderate our comments, you know, for better or worse. I was say. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and also do our Google analytics. 
And I just love that immediacy of feedback and the ability to learn on the spot and make decisions for the next day that were based on the input that we were getting in that day and, and, and the openness to be wrong about things. I, I really loved that our audience held us accountable and kept us honest about what it was that we said we were putting out there. And, and when we didn't hit the mark, they would let us know. And that was really powerful. That was really I think an incredible tool for us to really service them and and be in touch with their needs and why they were coming to us and what they wanted to see. Yeah, and that's a really good point about, you know, being open to being wrong cuz mm-hmm. you know, I'd imagine in those early days, I'd love to hear your thoughts on how you solidified the ways that you thought things were going correctly and how and the things that you were sort of course correcting along the way because it's starting anything is really touch and go so how did you know what was working how did you know what to fix how did you know like when to kind of stay firm what you're doing how do you know what to fix things? like how did walk me through that process of like how you solidified what was working and how you changed course with what wasn't it's not a it's not a perfect science mm-hmm. but it was a combination of things so first of all there was i think it's important to go with your gut and with your passion and in your, when you're starting something, you have to be lit up by what you're doing or else you're never going to have the energy and the perseverance to keep going. So um, it's not about always doing a focus group for everything and doing what ev- everyone else wants. Right. Um, you have to feel really excited about what you're doing. So one was just our internal excitement barometer, <laughs> uh, this very scientific tool. Uh, the other was... Yeah, that, that feedback of seeing what was working from a traffic perspective, seeing what was actually engaging people in dialogue with, with comments, and then also the commercial aspect of seeing, and that was tricky at the time because we were so small when we started that we couldn't use scale as a way to bring in advertisers or you know brand partners. And so we had to get really creative about what, what could we offer that was different that would bring business in and that would interest clients. And so really the gut and intuition mixed with the numbers and the feedback from audience, so the numbers around engagement, around traffic, and then the commercial piece, like kind of just balancing all three of those things and looking at the industry overall and figuring out where is their space. And at that time, there was so much space to experiment and and play and then mm-hmm. see test things and move move from there absolutely and you know for you you mentioned a little bit earlier that you know you came from the magazine world and you were you started as an intern at, at city magazine mm-hmm. and then you rose to being the photo director so you managed to get some leadership experience but i imagine that it's a completely different ball game whenever you're leading the actual company as opposed to being a leader within the company. So for you, how did you ride that learning curve of stepping into this leadership position? Yeah, there was definitely things that I I learned at City that I took forward. The environment there was very collaborative. It was really exuberantly creative and very playful and loving. And so those were things that I really loved. Like there was a, a real culture of humor and of having fun with brainstorms and mm-hmm. not being afraid to play and be ridiculous when in the creative process, which I think a lot of people do feel that that doesn't have a place in the professional world. But I saw over and over and over again when I was at City Magazine that kind of the more silly and playful we got, there was this pattern where someone would say something ridiculous, we would all laugh, and then boom, brilliance. Mm. And it happened again and again and again, and it, it just really showed 
me the power of play and of camaraderie in that creative process and, and also sort of the need to be open and expansive in order to have ideas come. And, and so I am always very aware of if things feel constricted and feel tight physically, emotionally, um, environmentally, and how we can bring that openness and that expansiveness into the environment so that we get great creative ideas. So that's something I did take from one place to the other. Mm -hmm. But certainly as we started to grow Refinery, I was in a completely different type of leadership role. And you know, that was an interesting transition for me, and I think it's changed so much over time. I've had to shed my identity as a leader and a creative many different times to rise to the occasion of what we need next, um, which I think as a creative person is tricky. There's, you know, I would even say there's some grief to that process because you, you know, you come up in a craft, in a skill. You know, for me, mine was photography, mm-hmm. and I loved being on set. I loved you know, creating imagery. And then as we started to grow the company, um, I realized that me being on every photo shoot wasn't, wasn't realistic. It wasn't what was my highest purpose to the company as a creative leader. And so I had to delegate that and stop going to shoots. And how do you, you let go? I think that's so interesting that you yeah. framed it as grief because I think that's what a lot of people they have a creative thing that they're super passionate about, but then when they try to really turn it into a business or start a business with it, a lot of that can fall away because yeah. you know you're you're entering into like a manager position, mm-hmm. like you're leading this team. And so, what is that grieving process? How do you let go of that? Not to say that you know you've never picked up a camera since you yeah. started Refinery Twenty Nine, but in this context of it being your job and being something that you're really passionate about, and knowing that that kind of needs to fall away, yeah, how do you let go? Yeah, I mean, it was a. It's been a process because there's been so many different phases of leadership and what's been needed of me. Um, so I think in every phase, it's been about first acknowledging that I was having grief, I was having sadness about leaving behind something that I was great at that I loved to do the next thing, uh, and then in looking at what the next thing was, really identifying what was going to make me feel passionate and excited about it and what there was to learn in that new opportunity that I was able to kind of f- move into that next phase. And also realizing, you know, I think for many people, they don't feel they fit in to leadership roles because they haven't seen themselves reflected in the larger landscape of leadership. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and for me, you know, as a woman and also someone that was coming from an art background, I really didn't feel that I had a lot of examples and role models. And so starting out in at Refinery, I thought that I had to kind of become someone else to fit that role. Right. And what I realized over time was that when I tried to become someone else, it was when I felt the least powerful and when I felt um, like just the least adept at doing the job. And it was actually when I leveraged my unique strengths and my points of difference that I was able to really conquer new challenges and grow and take on what was ex- you know what was needed. Mm-hmm. And I think whereas I thought that you know being this 
executive from art school was a negative, I actually over time realized that that was such a powerful differentiator and, and allowed me to see a lot of things differently and allowed me to not be beholden to old ways of doing things. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that's something I really think about a lot is just the importance of hiring people with different backgrounds and different you know, experience and mindsets, not mindsets, but more perspectives, right. and, you know, giving them the space to do what they're great at. But I did start to really think about um, how I could play more the role of the host mm -hmm. in the, you know, company's creative world and, and create the conditions for creativity, but not be in a position where everyone was looking to me for the answer. Right. Um, and that was also really powerful for me because there was times where I felt that everyone was looking at me for the answer and no, no one has all the answers. And that's also why you have a team so that you have all these, you know, incredible minds that are helping you to find the answer. So that moment was really great because I started to think more about that that role of the host, how I could actually enable people to make great decisions, how I could, when they came to me for an answer, how I could actually help them find the answer for themselves. Mm -hmm. um, and that became much more of, um, you know, how I thought about leadership and how I kind of moved away from sort of people seeing, thinking that I wanted them to be mini-me's and right. helping them to understand that they were there for who they were. Right. And... You know, in addition to obviously being a co-founder of Refinery29, you're also the executive creative director, which means that in addition to thinking of creativity on sort of a personal scale, you have to think of it for your team and for the company at large. Mm -hmm. And so in essence, I mean, how how do you scale something as subjective and almost nebulous as creativity and the creativity process? Because it's different for everyone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, you know, again, it's kind of going back to making sure everyone understands the values that we operate from, the mission that we're operating from, mm -hmm. and then, you know, setting them up to understand what the problems are that they're solving. Um, I think often creative can be seen as kind of a ra the wrapping paper on the present or the, you know, mm -hmm. sort of like, oh, you guys make it pretty. But right. when in actuality, you know, creatives are the, are most powerful when they're brought into the problem solving and they understand you know the business challenge and they're respected to help to solve it absolutely um you know i think another moment that was like really a a turning point as we were building the company and as i was thinking about how we sort of scale this this creativity and what we stand for was um, as we were starting to produce content at more, you know, faster pace and mm -hmm. bigger scale, we kind of hit this moment where, you know, my team had been really hands-on involved in the creation of all of the artwork for everything that we were making. And I start suddenly started having people within the company telling me that creative was a bottleneck mm -hmm. and that we weren't efficient. And, you know, and part of that was because a lot of the structures that were in place didn't support what we wanted to do because we wanted to really represent our audience and our content. We wanted to show women in their complexity, their diversity, you know, their imperfection. And so much of the industry was set around this old standard of, you know, this narrow beauty ideal that to be beautiful, to be fashion, to be beauty was to be tall, white, thin, and young with perfect skin. Right. 
And so the modeling agencies were like that. The stock photography sites were like that. The you know fashion houses were like that. And so what started to happen was that people were pulling you know from these stock photography sites. They were kind of just. And, and I started to look at the site, and I thought this doesn't reflect what it is that we have set out to put out in the world. Right. And I was really, really frustrated at the time. I remember I felt completely defeated, and I felt like no one appreciated what I had put into the company mm-hmm. to get it to that place um, or the role that creative had. And I went out to drinks with friends, and I was telling her about it, and I was like, they're saying creative is a bottleneck, and you know, but we need to keep the brand tight. We need to control the brand. And I was like making this um, clutching motion with my hands, and you know, she said, "Whoa, <laughs> you know, take take a breath, like, you know, right. let's order <laughs> let's order this girl another drink." Um, and she said, "You know, isn't it interesting though that they're saying creative is a bottleneck, and you are." literally making a bottleneck clutching motion with your hands and using all of these constricted terms like control and tight. Right. Well, read me, sis. I know. (laughs) But it was, I I was like, oh my gosh, you're so right. So then I thought, you know, then I was talking to her and I was like, okay, you're so right. Like maybe I, and I thought I could Jedi mind trick the situation. (laughs) So I was like, oh my gosh, you're so right. So the next day I went in and I was talking to people about how we needed guardrails for the brand so that people could drive as fast as they wanted on the highway but they wouldn't go off the road and I was just kind of making these like movements with my hands that looked fast and that looked smooth and yeah I thought I was gonna like mind trick the problem away but then what actually happened was that I realized the ways in which I was actually contributing to the true business issue that we were facing and in reframing the way I was talking about it, I actually sort of reframed the way I was thinking about it. And I started to ask myself, you know, what would it look like if we were working in this way where we were working fast? The editors had, you know, images at a moment's notice, um, so they didn't have to necessarily go through our team for everything. And in sort of just reimagining what it was that I was solving for that I wasn't sort of solving for a perception issue around creativity being a a bottleneck but that I you know actually needed to think about how we were going to solve this real challenge I remember I was like looking at Pinterest one day and I saw this image of this happy pill Hmm. and I all of a sudden this thought came into my head I thought maybe we can create our own stock photography so that our editors have images that represent our audience that are also, you know, stock photography at the time was so, you know, white woman laughing into a salad bowl, <laughs> cliche. Still such a and, great meme. <laughs> you know, yes. Uh, and so, you know, I thought maybe we can create our own stock photography. And so in that moment, we started our own anti-stock photography archive. We um, started street casting models so that we you know, could really reflect the world around us in the images and we didn't have to go through modeling agencies that were and still are, you know, quite limited in that representation. And it really, you know, that moment, all of the things that happened, we kind of created this new system for working and this new way of working that also, even though at the time it made our jobs harder, I was able to make the case for how we were building our own IP. We were Mm -hmm. building this you know, asset library of imagery that we could then continue 
to utilize and to build the business on. And so in doing that, we created a really unique visual identity that I think has set a new standard in the industry and has really created an incredible relationship with our brand where you know 78% of our audience can recognize our images in a lineup. You know, I think our audience appreciates the way that we've approached our image creation so thoughtfully and it's really kind of also changed the way that I think about how we solve problems within the company. I love that. And you know, you alluded to this feeling of almost like imposter syndrome earlier. I yeah. know you discussed that on other platforms as well. And so for you, I mean, where would you say you're at now in your evolution as a leader? Like where where do you think you have room to grow or in what way do you think you need to change your mindset as a leader right now? Is there anything that you feel like you need to change or anything that like keeps you up at night as a leader right now in terms of in terms of just that, like how you are leading this company? Yeah. Ooh. Good question. Um, I mean, I continue to have imposter syndrome to this day. Um, I think I think most people have imposter syndrome. I think it's just it doesn't become about conquering it or getting over it. It becomes just about being aware of it mm. and having some tools to move through it. It's not even past it. It's really about moving through it because it it comes up all the time. Um, and I think one thing that's really helped me with imposter syndrome is improv. I know you already did an episode mm, about mm-hmm. improv, but yeah. I did an improv class to get more comfortable with public speaking a few years ago. Uh-oh. And now I do a lot of improv exercises, uh, mostly with my daughter, because I find that it's really helpful doing it because it reminds you that you have the answers inside of you and that You know, I think that's such a huge fear for creative people that like, what if I fall short? What if I can't come up with an idea? And so I like improv because it reminds you that you always have the answers and you can always come up with something. So like with my daughter, I was going to say, what's an example? Well, two things I do with my daughter. One is um, in the morning, we say good morning to the world, but I challenge myself to not just say good morning tree, but to say, you know, good morning gray winter tree with leaves fall you know kind of say it say it in this more like spoken word Mm -hmm. poetic way and try and use different languages or use not not say blue but you know cerulean cerulean (laughs) yes oh what a beautiful word um so i do that with her and then i also at night i sing her basically to the tune of good night sweetheart i sing her a song about her day Um, And so I just challenge myself to try and find rhymes and try and create a song um, about her day that's different every night. But I like doing those improv exercises because it helps in a small way to remind me that we have all this creativity in us that we can manifest in when we need it. And then as a leader, you know, I've just... I've had to shed my skin so many times that I feel like any moment that you would ask me this question over the last 15 years probably would be the same challenge that I'm facing, which is sort of thinking about what the highest role that I can play now is. Mm -hmm. And now we're in a, you know, we're in a unique moment. We were just acquired by Vice. And so I'm not only thinking about the refinery brand, but I'm thinking about how our brand sits and fits within the larger Vice Media Group portfolio and what, you know, how each of the brands within Vice Media Group can be distinct and, you know, and grow. 
but when I have to do new things, I always try and remind myself of everything that I've done to get to where I am and the strengths and the qualities that have brought me there because those are the things that I can tap into to go into new territory and unknown territory. Right, and I'm so glad you brought up the acquisition because in what ways do you see this boosting Refinery29's mission and in what ways, if at all, are you concerned about changes to your creative autonomy in this? Because I imagine you, you know, here's this company that you co-founded, you nurtured it, Mm -hmm. you, you grew it, and now, you know, this is kind of not leaving the nest because obviously you're still with it, but it's it's kind of putting it into the hands or letting it be um, like folded into like another company. So that I imagine is a pretty difficult decision to make, you know. So for you, what essentially are the pros and cons? Like, what mm-hmm. are you excited about, and what, from a creative standpoint, are you concerned about, if if anything at all? Yeah, I think creatively, what I'm excited about is sort of having this bigger canvas mm-hmm. to paint on and having more. Um, having a lot of new places to, you know, to play creatively. And also I'm excited to be thinking about these different brands. I've thought about Refinery for 15 years and I'm still mainly focused on Refinery, but to me it's exciting to think about the potential and the growth of the different brands, like, mm-hmm. you know, how, how they all have room to reach unique audiences and, you know, come to life experientially, mm-hmm. physically, digitally, you know, on new platforms. I, that excites me. Just new. I'm always excited by new possibilities. I'm a builder, so I love any opportunity, you know, any new platform, any new business challenge. Like, to me, that's what excites me. So right. that I'm excited about. And then the global piece is super exciting to me because I just, I speak a lot in different places around the world. And I, don't, I was just speaking in Brazil last month. And nice. Oh, was, I went to Sao Paulo and it was, I had the best time. It's such a cool creative city. I've also never encountered such like am, amazing, intense fandom around Refinery than I, that I did there. And yet we don't have a presence there. We're not, you know, we try and think globally, but I think the, you know, the Refinery brand is very American at its core. You know, we have a lot of room to grow in terms of being a global brand, I think, and thinking and, and really serving audiences in different places. So when I was in Brazil, I thought like, wow, how amazing would it be if we actually, you know, this fandom is here already, but what if we actually had, you know, a focus on Brazil and an ability mm-hmm. to be on the ground in Brazil. And so just in terms of the impact that we can have in our mission, I'm excited to be able to bring that to, you know, global audience. Yeah, I think you know, the decision to be acquired was definitely an emotionally complex one because I've been stewarding this brand for 15 years with my co-founders and care about it deeply and care, you know, and want to see it continue to grow and be meaningful to our audience. And so, yeah, like there is a, a fear of losing control, but at the end of the day, I think the idea of control is an illusion in the first place. That's so Morpheus of you. You're like very red pill, blue pill red right pill. now. Like it's all an illusion. Well, a lot <laughs> of true. things are an illusion. Very true. I mean, we so most things are out of our control. We just right. we want to believe that we can control them. This episode of Creative Control is brought to you by Verizon, the network you can rely on for your phone and for your home internet. Find the plan that's right for you at verizon.com.
one thing that's really emerged over the past few years um, for many industries, including media, is uh, the experience economy. And you know that idea of extending products and services into the real world. And obviously a great example of that is 29 Rooms. And so for those who are unfamiliar, how would you describe 29 Rooms and how did it get started in the first place? Oh, 29 Rooms. I hate describing it. It's so hard to describe because it's sort of... Describe uh, your art. <laughs> well, it's just an... It's a, we call it our immersive world of culture and creativity. Mm -hmm. That's um, a great description. Okay, there you go. <laughs> that's, our, that's my description. Um, I think, you know, when we, when we started it, we started it um, for Refinery's 10-year anniversary. Mm -hmm. And we were thinking about how we could take the different topics that we cover in our content, the incredible creative collaborators that we work with, and put them into a physical space. You know, also the fact that we're a digital brand. We thought, like, how do we bring our brand to life physically in a way that um, includes our audience and really puts them center stage? Mm -hmm. And so we had this idea to take over a warehouse in Greenpoint and actually build out 29 different spaces, each with a different collaborator and you know, around a different topic that we would cover in our content. And at the time it was sort of, you know, we were thinking about how we were, as a digital brand, how we were going to get the message out about 29 rooms. And so we decided to make this space incredibly visual and, and really think about how the audience could put themselves center stage and be at the center of the experience so that everything, you know, wasn't about you can't touch the art. It was about creating these interactive spaces that were really visual and really immersive. We worked with incredible people that first year. We had, you know, Petra Collins did a room, Solange Knowles did a room with her St. Heron label. And we had like incredible brands. We had Minnie Mouse did a room. <laughs> yeah. uh, and it was a big experiment that first year. And we opened our doors to lines around the block and just really saw that there was this hunger for this physical experience and something that really put people into a place of wonder that was outside of their day to day and where they were really included because I think what we were thinking about was the fact that so many experiences, we did it during fashion week the first year, mm -hmm. and we were thinking about how so many experiences sort of put people, either exclude people or put people in the role of observer. Mm. And so we wanted to put people in the role of participant and, and make them feel that this experience was for them and about them. Right. And, you know, I think it's, it's interesting because our event is super fueled by social media. Like, that is how people find out about the event. That is how our, our, you know, that is a big value to our artists in terms of gaining awareness and visibility, you know, through the social footprint of the event. It's a big driving point for our sponsors. But we also try and balance that with the fact that it's a great in-person experience right. um, and it's been really interesting to see the shift in how people interact with the experience um, you know from the beginning people loved that it made them feel more creative that it tapped them into their self-expression their creativity and that they felt like it was for them mm -hmm. but now over time we've seen that what's really resonating with people at 29 rooms now is actually spaces for reflection and spaces for connection with one another mm. so our most popular room that we've had on the road this year is called 29 questions and we actually sit people across from a stranger and they have to stare into each other's eyes mm. and then answer questions some of which are you know pretty intimate right. um, from a card deck 
And we did it as an experiment, and it was actually, we were thinking about the fact that we had heard audience feedback for the last two years that they said they were really interested in one another and they wanted more opportunities to get to know the other people in the space. Mm-hmm. And which was interesting because most people come with friends and or you know or right. family members, and you know we thought that was kind of cool that they wanted to get to know each other. And then we were inspired by the thirty questions to fall in love with anyone. I don't know if you're familiar with that like yeah, scientific yeah. study. Yeah. Um, and so we kind of came up with this twenty nine questions concept. And and so it was this super last minute idea. We thought people are either gonna love this or they're going to be totally freaked out by the idea of sitting across from a stranger and no one is going to be in this room um and it's been amazing consistently every single market that we've been in it's been one of the top experiences right another room that's really successful and really popular is um, called conversation with your inner child where we're asking people to look in a mirror and sort of try and see their inner child and then write something to that person. So (laughs) I know, but so part of the experience is that reflection. I mean, but it's, it's people either are really hilarious with it like, or really deep. Um, So (laughs) it is like kind of a real journey into the human psyche. Like some of them you tear up other ones, like one person wrote, go to the mall to see that kid from Degrassi. He turns out to be a famous rapper. <laughs> oh god. <laughs> you know, so you get uh, you get the range. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but and you mentioned something earlier you were talking about, you know, how when 29 rooms launched, you know, launched during Fashion Week, which, you know, oftentimes some of those events can feel very like they're excluding people and then either then there's another situation of you just being an observer and it kind of made me think that now that we're entering into the space of like, you know, virtual reality mm-hmm. and AI, which a lot of that's great. And, you know, as the technology becomes more advanced and more seamless in really our everyday lives, I feel like to me personally, an experience like 29 rooms becomes even more important. Not to say that you'll never have, you know, virtual reality mm-hmm. element to it, but I do think that there's value in having those physical spaces for this. So for you, what value do you see in having? this physical event for something like this to spark creativity or thought or mm-hmm. whatever it might be like what to use that value in having that physical space that you can't get in any other way really yeah i think it's interesting you know I, with the event we think a lot about the play between the digital and the physical mm-hmm. because part of the event is physical and then part of it lives digitally and it's really interesting to see what people do with the digital content that they create because um, a lot of times people use it to talk about things that are quite deep or quite political. But I think the, you know, what we see is that, you know, while social media, I think, has created a lot of community and created a lot of visibility for people that were, you know, excluded from a lot of mainstream media, there's also sort of like a a loneliness that it creates and a disconnect from the physical world. And so I think there is a real desire to fill that with experiences and with, you know, real life connection. And so what we see and here is the real value of 29 Rooms is the fact that it gets people outside their comfort zone, that they sort of come and it's a space of permission for them to pick up a paintbrush for the first time since Mm -hmm. middle school, for them to dance in public, for them to meet a stranger, to, you know, engage in things that, or be exposed to things that they might not otherwise. And it really, it really sort of showed this range of 
creativity and give people access to that and the space to explore different passions that they might have or things that you know might not they might not tap into daily and I think a lot of people have a wound with their creativity they have they've lost touch with it because you know maybe they're told they're not creative or they weren't good at drawing so they just stopped doing it but our creativity is our life force it's such a like innate part of being human and so in our space we're you know in, in in many ways trying to just get people back in touch with their creativity their expression and give them a space to like have fun but also reflect mm-hmm. like I think we open people up with fun and then we sort of that puts them in a mindset to be more open to kind of like playing exploring and discovering new parts of themselves I love that and you know I would imagine at the core of 29 rooms and really you know any brand is keeping the essence of what you're doing while trying to evolve in some way Mm -hmm. and I feel like specifically with events that winds up not being the case I'm you know I'm I'm thinking of a few events but I'm not going to name them but a lot of them become unrecognizable from where they started Mm -hmm. like it's just been a complete oh I want to know the list you can tell me after we turn off the mics (laughs) so for you I mean what has been the solution of not getting away from your core idea while still growing at the same time yeah, I mean, with both Refinery and 29 Rooms, that's definitely, you know, I think something that I think about a lot mm-hmm. is sort of what is the essence, but then what is malleable and what needs to continue to evolve. Um, so I think, I mean, I think about that similar to how I think about it personally, which is always going back to the strengths and mm-hmm. to, you know, the things that we as a team feel really passionate about and thinks things that we think went well. Um, so starting there and things that, and also always looking at the feedback that we get from the audience. And so we kind of, st- we always start with the strengths. What, what do we want to bring forward? And then what do we want to leave behind? Mm-hmm. Um, to me, I do that exercise every year personally as well, like reflecting back on the year and looking at what what really worked for me, what lit me up, what served me, and what sent me down a spiral of hell <laughs> um, and needs to be left behind. Right. Um, so we just, we're, I mean, that's sort of how I approach the creative process is is just constantly testing, learning, evolving, experimenting, but, you know, always having those moments after we do something to take stock. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think so often, like, you know, even when you think of the idea of a postmortem, like, well, first of all, the name I sounds know. like you're at the morgue. Um, <laughs> I mean, literally. But usually like... people only want to do a po- postmortem when things went to hell, right. <laughs> when everything went wrong. But I think it's also really important to analyze your successes just as much. And so and that's kind of how I approach both is – you know, that process of, of taking stock and of both what's good and, and what, you know, you want to say goodbye Absolutely. to. Nice. And I guess it's sort of to sum up, I mean, how would you say 29 Rooms and really Refinery29 as a whole has expanded or altered your idea of creativity? Oh. I know. I like to end with a bang. That's a good, <laughs> that's a, I think the process of creating Refinery29 and 29 Rooms has expanded my idea of creativity and so many different ways and um, I think one of those is that I've just seen the power of the fact that creativity can come from anywhere and that creativity is something that everyone possesses but not everyone gives themselves the permission to tap into and so I think what I've seen is the power of creating that space for people to tap into their creativity whether it's a brainstorm in my office where I invite people from throughout the company 
to join or it's welcoming people into 29 rooms to tap back into something that they haven't in a long time. Um, I think it's giving that power back to people is so incredible and it's I think something that's so necessary to kind of heal our world and also to tap into new voices, new innovation, new ideas. Um, so that's that's really what I've what I've seen and something that I feel really passionate about is making sure that everyone has a, a creative voice and that they see and believe that their creative voice matters. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Here, thank you so much. That thank was so you. lovely. I really appreciate You're that. You're a joy. Thanks for listening to Creative Conversation. Be sure to subscribe to Creative Conversation wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you like what you're hearing on this podcast, don't forget to rate and review. We always love hearing your feedback. I'm your host, Casey Fining.